0: chapter 3 currently walking through uh, chapters 2 and 3 which are the seven churches in the uh, province of Asia and uh, we're uh, into chapter 3 and and walking through the last three churches and just beginning to uh, move into the church at Sardis which has been a great study and of course we'll move into then Philadelphia and Laodicea and um one of, the, uh, one of the really significant aspects of looking at the churches is the overall address that Jesus makes to these seven churches. This is going to take a second to kind of uh, prepare you for this because it's really significant. Um, when you come into Revelation, it has three sections to it. Okay? If you were to take the prophecy and you were to break it down, you'd find out that the prophecy has three parts to it. The first part is the introduction, and that's chapter 1. That means everything that uh, the book is about, the prophecy is about, is introduced in this chapter. Chapter 1, introduction. Everything going on that chapter is for the purpose of introducing. So he does that there. That introduction is specifically given to seven churches in the province of Asia. In other words, he seeks to introduce to these churches what he's going to say in the prophecy. So the second section is chapters 2 and 3, which is this Uh, introduction to these seven churches it's it's the address that these uh, that that is taking place to these seven churches so the first chapter is an introduction the second chapter is the address to the seven churches in whom received the introduction the third and last section begins at chapter four and takes uh, and extends all the way to the end of the book and that's the prophecy itself okay what which is what is being introduced now when we say from chapter four to the end of the book is the prophecy um, we need to understand that the prophecy, that is, that is future stuff, okay? In fact, the word prophecy uh, is a compound Greek word made up of two words. It's made up of pro and fetes, okay? Pro means before, fetes means to tell. So this is to tell something before it happens. So this is future. Now, the real dialogue, controversy perhaps, with, with Revelation is is it still future now? Okay? And in other words, we know it was future to them because that's what prophecy is all about. Prophecy is to tell something before it happens. So we know it was future to them. The question is, is it still future to us now? And of course, I'll leave that for your pastor to work out. But we know at least that it was future to them, that the things that, that John is writing did not happen in the past. This is stuff that will happen in their future. Okay? And again, whether that's taking place in our... Our time and, and, and day and time we do not know. And so basically you have the, this, this prophecy is broken down into three parts. The book of Revelation in three parts. This middle section which is the address to the seven churches ha, is, is, a, is kind of a, uh, it's one major, um, one major address that has seven parts to it. Jesus is speaking specifically to these seven churches. And what's fascinating is you begin to walk through this, you see that as Jesus moves and speaks to each church, he carries the same approach. He has the same uh, approach when he speaks to, the, to each church. And I gave you a little bit of this on Friday night. Uh, he has three aspects to his approach, but I want to add one more piece to it. When Jesus comes to the church, each church, he does three things. First thing that he does, first thing he does is he introduces who he is. Okay? And he shows that he is the answer to what that church is facing. He does not present himself as the one who has the answer. He presents himself as the one who is the answer. Jesus is the answer for what they're facing. They are to get wrapped. He's not going to give an answer apart from himself. He himself is the answer. He's the big deal. So in whatever they're facing, you get wrapped up into him, release him into the circumstances, and everything changes. So Jesus says, I am the answer for what you're facing. First thing that he says to each and every church. The next thing he does to each church is he talks about their context of everyday living, which you get into the passages uh, that, he, that he speaks to each church. You, you're under the inclusion that he knows more about their context than they know about their context. So he's coming and he's saying, hey, I know about your job, I know about your married life, Uh, I know about the situation in your family, I know about your health situation, I know about all those things. I am the answer for what you're going through. Release me in the midst of that circumstance. The last thing Jesus does to each church is he talks about a result that he wants to bring about, and that's the concluding uh, statement that he makes to each church. Releasing Jesus into your context of everyday living uh, is, is what he desires because there's something he wants to bring about. Now, what we haven't highlighted thus far this weekend, though we talked about it last time we were here, is that there is this consistent statement that is made to each church. When you get into, and I'll try to make this brief. When you get into the seven churches, um, there's a variety of language that's used. Okay, same approach. Jesus has the same approach to each church, but as he speaks to each church with that same approach, there's different language. He introduces himself different to every church. Each church is a different context. He wants to bring about different things in each church. So the language is all different. But to each and every church, hear this, to each and every church, Jesus uses this same statement. And most of the time, it it, it, it is found between the context and the result. And if you want to look at the first church, which is Ephesus, you would find that it's in verse 7. And this same statement he says to every church, it is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, scholars tell us that is a conditional statement. Okay, If you want Jesus to be released into your context of everyday living, you want him to bring about a result in your life that he wants to bring about, then the condition is you have to have an ear to hear. Period. If you do not have an ear to ear, Jesus cannot bring about in your life what he wants to bring about period. So Jesus calls every church, speaking, speaking to them with the same, uh, same approach, talking about the same three things, okay, calling each of them to having an ear to hear. Now, we don't typically use this ear to ear uh, this ear to hear language. You know, we don't come in on Sunday morning and say, put on your spiritual ears. Um, we've been playing around with some other language uh, because this is not just physical hearing uh, this is spiritual hearing. In fact, we looked at it last night when Jesus was talking to the leaders of Israel. He says, you cannot hear me. Okay? They, they have spiritually shut down and are spiritually unable to hear Jesus. And so we're not talking about a physical ear. We're talking about a spiritual ear. And some of the language that I've been tossing around to describe spiritual hearing is posture language. Jesus is calling the seven churches to live in spiritual posture. See, I believe just as we have physical posture, we have spiritual posture. We are to live and walk in this this state of constantly having an ear to hear. And that unleashes Jesus to do what he wants to do in our life. He's calling us to have a a spiritual ear. He's calling us to have uh, uh, this ear to to hear whenever he speaks to us. He wants us to live in spiritual posture. Um, It's really significant that at least in my life, what he's been doing, what Jesus has been doing over the last several years. But every year, it just becomes tighter and tighter and tighter. He's calling me to have this unbroken, if you could hear this, this unbroken conversation with him. And everything that I do, and whether it's a game that I'm playing, whether it's a, I mean, just a relaxing time with my family, whether I'm preaching, whether I'm working, uh, whether I'm driving, filling up the car with gas, Whatever. I I am to live in this constant conversation with him. I am to live in a constant state of correct spiritual posture before him. Paul called that praying without ceasing. Just never, never stop talking. Never stop talking to him. It's his input. It's his, because you're filled with the spirit. That's what makes you a Christian. He's he's residing in your body. And so you, you, this is really significant. See, he's residing in your, in your being. And you're walking with this constant input of him in your life. He's speaking, he's guiding, he's pulling. And without Jesus, all you have is a form of godliness. You have religion. And religion is never what he desired. You have practices, you have good morals. Um, we were, uh, give, me a, give me an example of this. We were at this church a few weeks ago. And um, the pastor was telling me, and I didn't say anything. <laughs> just kept my mouth shut which is a rarity um, but the pastor was telling me about this couple that had been coming to the church he was rather new there they'd been coming there for like 10 years and um, they were kind of fringes you know they weren't there every single week they weren't teaching the sunday school class they didn't go to sunday school they just kind of come in when they came in but God had been doing some things in their life and they had been coming more often and, and, you know, responding to altar calls. No one really knew what they were praying about, you know. But, and they got along, had a couple kids, you know. They were a little bit older, and, and uh, kids were in high school. And, and um, so they'd been together for a long time. And uh pastor found out that they weren't, they weren't married. I they weren't married. And uh, I'm listening to how the pastor is talking about all of this. And uh, he's really stressing that they need to get married. They need to get married. Because you you can't live in sexual immorality. And I was really interested in how he's going to describe sexual immorality, which is sin. Which sin is a product not of activity, but sin is a product of a broken relationship and a broken intimacy with with Jesus Christ, with God. Okay, so they're living in sin and I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, they're not married Uh, they really haven't been sold out to but god's been doing something new in their life They're becoming more fixed. They're becoming more focused And pastor comes across this this news that they're not married And so hey, god needs to heal that, you know, if they're gonna they're gonna stand up and say yes I want to serve jesus and and I want to bear the title christian. I need to get married so they went down to the justice piece and uh after like 15 years of living together, they went down to the Justice of Peace and got this marriage certificate. Wow, done, fine, yeah, it's good to go. And I really struggled with that. I really struggled with that because what, see, what changed? I mean, they got a, they got a piece of paper to your name. Oh, it's all better now. Went down to the Justice of the Peace and got a piece of paper to your name. Or maybe they went to a pastor and he said, okay, you're married. And that, that fixed the whole sexual immorality thing. That in my mind, and in, in, in my constitution, in the way that I understand a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's not the whole focus or, or push of what marriage is all about. It's not just a, it's not just a piece of paper that says you're, marriage, you're, you're married. Married is an involvement in two individuals' lives where they stand before God and say, you are going to be the center of this marriage. We are going to live in this posture kind of language for you. And you are going to be speaking. You're going to be guide. We're going to come underneath your, your authority. We're not just going to live together. See, that, hey, they were coming to church. They were just living together. And they, they weren't cheating on each other. Okay? They weren't, it wasn't this loose affiliation. They were committed to one another. So really, when it came down to it, it was so, it was so formal. All the tip places, they got a paper that validated. Oh, now God's happy. What? That's ridiculous. Same thing. I was talking with a couple, and this is a couple years ago. And uh, it was over, this guy was really just adamant that his friend needed to be baptized if he wanted to be a Christian. And he pulls me into the conversation at some camp or camp meeting. I I think it was a camp meeting, but he pulls me into the conversation about it. And he goes, tell him, you have to be baptized. That kind of looked weird. I said, maybe we should talk about this by ourselves. He said, when were you baptized? I said, what? He said, you aren't baptized? I said, this is bad. He said, yeah. You should have talked to me in advance about this whole thing. You know? he, said, you know? he said, you got saved when? I said, 1995. He said, when were you baptized? I said, I wasn't. So I guess we're both not saved. You know? I, I, what do you do with that? You know? And his response was, well, we'll go out and dunk you in the water, and you'll be in. You kidding me, right? You're kidding me. See, that's activity stuff. And then as a side note, that week I ended up talking to my mom on the phone and she said, Yeah, you were baptized as a kid. I was like, Really? She said, Yes, yeah. so I went back I so I guess I was baptized as a kid. He goes, Oh, well, you're okay then. Wow, man. You're okay then. Got that done. Got that done. See, it's just it's a formality. That's you understand, that's not at all what we're talking about. What at all the church is calling? And I'm not against baptism. Okay? I'm not against baptism. I'm not against marriage. Don't go home and say Jeremiah said you can live together. I'm not talk. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that what spiritual posture is all about is not. It's not formality. Uh, it's, it's not. Uh, activities that uh, uh, needed activities that need to take place in the life of a believer, you need to come to church on Sunday, you need to stand up and worship, you need to respond and go down to the altar to be saved and when you become saved you need to say these kinds of things, we need to throw you in a bucket of water and these kind of things, that's that's not at all what we're talking about. Spiritual posture is this walking in intimacy and relationship with Him where He is the answer for my life, He's emptied into my context to do whatever He wants to do and because I am living in this context Constant conversation with him and he's moving in my life. He's able to bring about me whatever bring about in me whatever he wants to bring about. I am literally the event I where he is he moves and he acts and he works because I'm in this intimate, tight, infilled relationship with him. What makes me a Christian therefore is not just right activities. What makes me a Christian is this dynamic relationship that I'm that I'm in with him, this infilling of the Holy Spirit. He is sourcing my life. And this is, and you can understand, this gets confusing. The reason I'm bringing this up, this gets, this gets confusing. We, we seem to get Christianity blurred. One more. Uh, we were in Perry just a few weeks ago, just up the road from here. And after the service on Sunday morning, the uh, pastor said, we want to go out to eat, but the only place to eat is in Owasso. There's no really place to eat in Perry. So we piled in the Jeep, and they had their vehicle, and... Um, we're heading to, uh, to, to uh, Wasso about 20 minutes away. Now, we have uh, two kids, and so we've got these, um, these screens. <laughs> so It's a great invention. You have these little movie screens put on the back of each seat, okay, in our, van, or in our uh, Jeep. And uh, they can play a movie, and it just, you know, the kids just you know, focus in, and it's awesome. Um, so, we have two kids, girl and boy, C.J. and Elena. And so, uh, we have two different tastes of movies, okay? elena likes anything pink okay any movie that has pink in it that's what she wants to watch cj likes you know mario and he likes adventure and he likes that kind of stuff so they take turns watching videos well this was elena's turn and so she wanted to watch strawberry shortcake okay (laughs) so we put in strawberry shortcake so we're on our way this is this is so insightful of my boy we're on our way and um and i are just driving kind of you know chatting and out of the back seat my son goes dad and I said, yeah. He goes, Strawberry Shortcake ain't a Christian. <laughs> I mean, he's dead serious. No joking. Strawberry Shortcake ain't a Christian. I look over my shoulder, <laughs> and Elaine is ready to fight, okay? Because she likes Strawberry Shortcake. Don't be talking about my girl like that, okay? And I'm just, I'm talking to Krinda. We're on our way to eat. I'm not, you know. Probably should have read more into it. I just was keeping the peace. We're almost there. Stop fighting. Strawberry shortcake's fine. Quit being judgmental. You watch the TV and no talking. Turn back front. And without skipping a beat, he calls up then. then how come she never talks about Jesus? Interesting. And I look at Corinda and she's looking at me like, you going to deal with this? (laughs) You know? and he was right he was right see how, how do we define Christianity I mean is, is politically correct moral good person I don't kill anybody dress you know proper is that Christianity I show up to church I mean is that really what it means to be a Christian And I did. I looked back to my son and I said, Well, maybe you're right. Son, yeah, I guess you're right. She doesn't ever talk about Jesus, does she? So she's going to hell. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Strawberry shortcake's going to hell. (laughs) No, but I I did. I looked back to him and I said, Yeah, I think you're right. I guess strawberry shortcake, because she is. She's very moral. She's honest. All of her little videos have moral, honest, and, and, you know, and so she's not bad. She's not evil. It's not like a little emo-demented, you know, strawberry shortcake and scars and all that. I mean, she's not, you know, she isn't the picture of of demonic, you understand. But is she living in this intimate, tight relationship, giving him the glory? He's speaking in direction in her life, and she's walking in this. That's Christianity. That's what we're talking about. And this is consistent. The reason I brought you through this is this is the consistent message, the consistent speaking of Jesus to each and every one of these churches. That Christianity is not activity-based. It is not activity-driven. Christianity is thoroughly spirit-sourced, spirit-driven, spirit-infilled kind of thing in an individual's life. Now again, the reason I'm bringing this up to you is that when you come into the church at Sardis, what's taking place with Sardis is that they are a religious community. It's interesting, when you go back and study some of these churches, it's difficult. It's difficult in other letters in the New Testament because uh, among the churches in Revelation, over half of them we don't know anything about. We don't know anything about these churches. We don't even know how they were started. We know about Ephesus. We know how Ephesus was started. We know some details about that church and a couple of the other churches. But a few of them, Thyatira, they're not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. You just don't know anything about them. So you study secular uh, history, you study uh, extra-biblical Christian history, and you learn a little bit about them, and it's, it's very much that with Sardis. Sardis, you, you, you learn, and you're under the impression from, from Christian history, but not biblical, that's uh, uh, not in the Bible, but from Christian history, you learn that um, Paul was involved with the church at Sardis, and that Sardis was probably started out of the movement at Ephesus, Okay. And that also, Sardis was a very wealthy town. Apparently, they would have these drenching rains. I thought that was kind of neat. They would have these drenching rains that would hit Sardis, and so out of the mountains, all of this water would come gushing. And they had this huge stream that went through the city, and they worked with that and everything, and built you know uh, safety procedures and ways to capture the water, and you can learn about all that. But one thing that was interesting: is that apparently, there was some kind of a gold deposit in the mountains. And so Sardis was one of the first kind of gold rush places. It's, it's the first place that, uh, that we have documented in history, apparently, if I understand this right, where gold uh, imprinting or the minting of gold coins took place. took place in Sardis. Because what would happen is when these torrential rains would come and pull through the city, it would bring down deposits of gold. So whenever these huge rains would come, everybody would come flying out of their house down to the river and wait to catch the gold. So it, that's what started it and out of that kind of funding of, of finances uh, Sardis became an extremely significant and wealthy town and dyeing wool and, and, and manufacturing wool and it was a very very wealthy kind of a city. Now even in secular culture they say because of this extreme wealth most of the citizens, there's a point to telling you this, most of the citizens live loose lives it's it's loose living seems to go hand in hand with finances okay. And you got extra money loose living comes okay and apparently that was also so with with Sardis uh, loose living and riotous living and just really rowdiness and all that kind of stuff and, uh, that was that was also stereotyped with um, Sardis what's really interesting about the church however is the church stood out in that culture and those who went to that church they stood out as not participating in any of that in fact you listen to what how jesus begins he says these are the words who holds the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know you have i know your deeds and you have a reputation of being alive this church was known they they were known hear this they were known they're not bad they're not evil See, they weren't going out in the middle of the night and going to the nightclub and sneaking back in. That's not this church. They had a reputation of, hey, we we are standing in the midst of this party town city and we're not going to budge on this deal. They had a reputation. They, they, They were strawberry shortcake, just nice, proper, say the right things, use the right kind of language, dress the right kind, a very good, proper, moral kind of place to be obviously they're christian i mean they don't indulge in any of the stuff going on in the town they don't they hey, they don't indulge in any of the wickedness they're not drunkards they're not gluttons they're not out there and mixing in sorcery they're not everything that the world can offer all the luxuries that are at their fingertips they've, they've abstained from all of that so they have a reputation is what jesus says in the passage so as i was beginning to go and learn about sardis you know you have no idea what you're going to get into when you're learning about a town and, but this kind of a town was, uh, it was just known for that, and the church, even from uh, secular history, they did not, see, they were not involved in any of that stuff. But the clincher was, but this is really incredible, the clincher was, is one or two commentators, and if you find it in, in a couple different scholars' writings, and they don't necessarily reference each other, you know it's, it's really true, that in 14 centuries... Okay? The church in Sardis survived for 14 centuries. Okay? It's a pile of rubble now. But for 14 centuries, the church was, that was in Sardis, there was no significant happening at all in that church in 14. They did not contribute one significant piece to Christian history in 14 centuries. They did not make a difference. They did not stand out. They were not used by God. In 14 centuries, there was nothing that took place like that did, took place in Ephesus. You see what took place in Ephesus? If you don't remember in Ephesus, I mean, you had these uh, disciples that had not received the spirit when Paul shows up. And he lays his hands on them. They receive the spirit and the entire town is turned upside down. I mean, it's ridiculous. You have an entire demographic of people, these source, those who practice sorcery. They come and they burn their scrolls. And if you remember we talked about last year, they calculated the value of the scrolls and it came to 50,000 drachma. And a drachma is one day's wage. So it tells you the size of group that this was. 50,000 days wages. I mean, Ephesus was changed forever. And you understand, hey, the church in Ephesus dwindled for a time. And who knows how, how prominent it is today or if it's at the same church or if it's even there or all the details of that. But there was a major movement. Of, in 14th century, God never used Sardis. It was never a dynamic piece in Christian history. God never came on the, the church and said, bam, and moved. They were just a nice, moral, kind of upstanding, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't lie, we don't steal. You know, we give our... It was that kind of a place. And Jesus comes and addresses them blatantly and he says, listen, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Because Christianity is not just about, well, I show up to church on Sunday and I don't lie, Jeremiah. I'm not evil. Do you understand that? And I find this so, so refreshing and just it's the unstoppable force of Christianity that what it means to be in is that you are totally, look me in the eye, you are totally consumed with Jesus Christ. He is the center focal point of your life. There are levels, I think. I think there are, I I don't know if this is the right language, but I think there are levels in Christianity. The first level is it's all brand new and it's kind of exciting and you come out of whatever life that you come out of and God moves in your life and you become saved. That's the first level. God deals with you. You begin to go to church, it's all kind of new. But you begin to come keenly aware that there's more that you're not into. There's something beyond. You begin to see other people and the way they live and the sacrifices taking place in their life and their investment and their heart and the way they act, they don't respond when you would just, you know, I mean, there's just, there's a whole nother kind of a deal. You begin to, and you've got the Holy Spirit living inside your life, but you begin to realize that the bigger deal is that these people are just They're totally given over. Hey, there's no self-regard left. Sooner or later, as you walk with Jesus, and it's going to be sooner rather than later, He's going to call for every area of your life to be completely, totally, utterly saturated by Him. Him and Him alone. Your life is to revolve around Jesus Christ. I've used a number of illustrations on this. You are to run after Jesus, young guys, like you run after the opposite sex. Period. In fact, hey, girls pale. Your bodily drive's pale in light of him. And there's a hundred illustrations you can use. We're not talking about activities. We're not talking about, hey, I was baptized. I'm married. We're not talking about certificates here. We're talking about the involvement, because I've met people that are married that aren't married. They're married, but they're not married. I mean, they have a certificate on their wall, but Jesus Christ is not the inflowing in their marriage. You mean they argue? No, I argue (laughs) with my wife, okay? I mean, you know, we're arguing less, praise the Lord, you know? But the deal is, is that we're walking in this posture of, hey, I'm vulnerable in this. I want your voice in the center of my marriage. I want your voice in the center of my driving. I want your voice in the center of my ministry. and In the center of my gaming. That I I want to operate. I want to swim in your presence moment by moment by moment. That's the message. Sardis was not getting into that. And, And again, obviously we're not talking about your church. But all those other churches out there. I do. I meet people from week to week to week. And it's not, I'm not judging them, but... You're just under the impression that he is not it. He is not it. They just... And it doesn't have to do with with not coming to church services. (laughs) It doesn't have to do with, you know, they're not going to volunteer at the church potluck. It's just, it's the way they talk. They don't talk about him like they talk about other things. Their lives don't revolve around him. You understand, one of the major critiques that I have in, this, in, in our day and age with the church is um, probably would be between the 20s and the 40-year-old generation, my generation. One of the critiques that I have with my generation is we don't tithe. We don't tithe. And I'm going to tell you, it's a reflection of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Typically, what I hear with my generation is, oh, we give. Giving is not tithing. Giving is not tithing. You say, we well, probably give more than 10%. Giving more than 10% is not tithing. Tithing is first fruits kind of stuff. One of the pools, and I've been around just long enough to see this transition, I've watched over the last 15 years, I've watched the church kind of go through this transitional phase where the older generation is always led and the younger generation is always going, let us lead, let us lead, let us lead. That transition has been happening. Uh, major shifts. People write about it in the emerging church and all that kind of stuff. Worship is changing. Sanctuaries are changing. Dress is changing. Okay? All of these kinds of things are changing. And the younger generation wants leadership. But they're not taking leadership. Well, yeah, they are. They're leading worship. That's what they wanted, right? Well, yeah, but that's not leadership. I mean, we changed the sanctuary and they're on the board and they're teaching the Sunday school classes. But that's not leadership. What leadership is is I take leadership. I, I step into, I step into the responsibility of God moving in my community, and let that rest on my shoulders. That when controversy hits the church, I don't cut and run. The older generation, the ones that always stay, they always stick around. They're always here. They always bear that brunt. They always carry that weight. And what's happening in our day and age is the older people are dying. Seriously, they're dying. And Pastors are taking pay cuts. Why because the younger I was at a church. that ran about 500 about a month or two ago and uh, The pastor told me that 90% of the church income comes in from the 60 and older crowd 90% of the income Then a thriving minute. There's a there's a prop and, and you'd say oh well the younger generation. They're bad. How do you define bad? How do you define evil? And i'm being honest with you i'm scared to death and chad and i've talked about this in 10 years my ministry is going to change why because you younger people are going to be cutting my check (laughs) and there's a lot of you that are going to be dead and gone a lot i guess some of you are young but the deal is is that some of you are going to be dead and gone and that's tithe that's dead and gone that's not tithe. all he's talking about i'm talking about responsibility for taking this message out there and everything we do in here And there's going to be a whole generation that's not going to be carrying that weight. And my generation doesn't care about it as much as they care about their SUVs, their televisions, their Xboxes, and their Friday night and their clothing. I still want to be your friend after this study. But the deal is, is that, hey, they don't, I'm telling you, everywhere we're seeing this. In 10 years, the first person they're going to cut are guys like me. And that's going to take a toll on the church. You say, why? Because I believe, not me, but my position's voice is instrumental in the life of the body. And there's going to be things that begin to be cut. Why? It's not because they're bad. It's not because they're evil. They've got a reputation. They've been in church all their life. They show up every Sunday. But this is not centered on him. They're not walking in, taking the response. Their life does not revolve around the person. Jesus doesn't turn them on like other things turn them on. They're so wrapped up in all these other, when they're supposed, that's, that's Sardis. And in 14 centuries, no massive, life-changing movement ever changed this city in the early church. There was no great revival that started, that's talked about like Ephesus, like in Colossae, like in some of the other towns in Corinth. The, I mean, Rome even. Nothing going on in Sardis. So Jesus comes and he says, listen, really quickly. He says, hey, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I'm give you one quick illustration on this. I want you to turn back with me, and I do mean quick, to John chapter 3. And this is an old study. I mean, this is 10 years old. When I begin to walk through the address at Sardis, what began to come to my mind, bear with me, he who bears to the end will be saved. Praise the Lord. When, you, uh, when I begin to walk through this uh, conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus in chapter 3, it was really remarkable. It was really remarkable. Because you have Nicodemus, and, and I won't go through all the grammar, but all the grammar that's used at the beginning of chapter 3 to describe Nicodemus is given on purpose. He's not just a Pharisee. If you want to know the kind of, the kind of group that the Pharisees were, Nicodemus models that. He is is the Pharisee that is just the, I mean, Pharisee of Pharisees that Paul would use in his language. Uh, He's the example of that group. But he's not just a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a member of the Jewish ruling council. Paul wasn't even that. He's a teacher of teachers. I mean, in in, in Judaism, you could not get a better resume than Nicodemus. That's not just preacher stuff. I mean, he's phenomenal. He's a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. I mean, he was the authority of authorities. And then on top of that, among all of the Pharisees, and and and, um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea will come along with this later, but among all of the Pharisees in Jerusalem, when Jesus comes in and moves and preaches and teaches and does all that he does on the feast day in the temple, Nicodemus is one of the few that says, hold on, there's something to this guy. In fact, Nicodemus ends up becoming a, a disciple at the end of this gospel. In the passage, you see that he seeks Jesus out at night. You see, what's that all about? Well, you remember that people in Jerusalem would rent out their upper rooms. They they converted. It literally was a way to make money in their day. I mean, during all the feast days throughout the year, they could make an extra buck or two by by organizing an area of their house so when these feasts took place, other people who came down to celebrate them, they could rent out those rooms, upper rooms, garages, sheds, whatever. And so Jerusalem, during a feast day, the population would go from 250,000 to about 2.5 million. So Jesus comes down to this feast day with his mother's brothers and disciples and he rents out this upper room. Nicodemus takes the time to seek out where he's staying and to come and talk with him. Why? Because God was Something was taking place. And listen to what he says to Jesus. He looks at Jesus and says, Listen, we know you are teachers come from God, man. My word. I see it. That's the kind of man this guy is. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, Sorry, you're not in, Nicodemus. But you're not in. In fact, you can't be improved. You need to be born all over again. Flesh produces flesh. Verse 6. Flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. You have to be sourced. God moving in your life, walking in intimacy and relationship. Him inputting into your life, leading and guiding. You're in this constant conversation. You do not have that, Nicodemus. You're not bad. You're not evil. Strawberry shortcake. You're not an evil person. But you don't, have, you don't have it. You don't have what we're talking about. Nicodemus is so jarred by this, by the time you come down to the end of the, the middle of their conversation in verse 9, Nicodemus says, How can this be? What are you talking about? How can I not be in? And Jesus gives this illustration to him. He says, Man, I can't, he goes, You're an Israel's teacher. You don't get this? And Jesus says, I know, hold on a second. He says, do you see that group over there pointing to his disciples? He says, they're in and you're not. Which you understand how staggering that was? You're talking about, he said, look, you know those those 12 ignorant fishermen? Yeah, he's scratching himself over there. Yep, they're arguing, that's right, the tax collector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. They're in and you're not. They don't have the resume and he does. You say, what's the difference between them and him? They are operating and living under somehow, even though the Spirit had not been fully given yet, they are operating under the guise, the direction, and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when you go back into chapter 2 at the feast day, which we won't for time's sake, but when you go back into chapter 2, when Jesus shows up in the temple, the only people that see what's actually happening are the disciples. They say, zeal for your house will consume me. All of them at the same time, God moves upon them and reveals who Jesus is. Because Christianity is a revelation by the spirit kind of a thing. And the leaders of Israel, I mean, they're totally confused. Jesus has "Destroy this temple and I'll, I'll raise it in three days. They're like, it goes over their head. They don't, they don't get it. They don't catch on to it. But the disciples have insight. And the reason they have insight is because they're living in the posture that all Christians are going to be called to live in. The final thing Jesus says to the church in Sardis is he says, if you do not repent, I am going to come like a thief and you're not going to know it. There's two ways to interpret that. Some scholars say, well, Jesus is going to come back and they're going to be left. Dude, they're dead. Like 2,000 years ago, dead. Like no flesh on bones in a grave, dead. So Jesus would not say that. I'm going to come back and you won't know it. You're dead. (laughs) They're going to know it. It's early, you don't get it. But the deal is, is, hey, he's not talking about second coming here. You see, what is he talking about? He's saying a thief comes when you're not aware of it. They're not bad. But if you don't get into posture and you don't get absolutely absorbed with him, I'm going to come and move in your midst and you're never going to recognize me. Some rather tension-filled moments are going to happen between you and your wife. And because you're not, you're going to miss what I want to accomplish through those tension-filled moments. I forgot to bring it this morning because I didn't drink my Red Bull soon enough. But I've been reading this book by this guy who is a nut. He's not credible. No one likes him. I love him. (laughs) Guys, I do. I do. I love him. I think he's fantastic. And he says some wonderful things. He literally says that Satan is a tool. Satan is a guerrilla warfare specialist whom God could have taken out of the picture, but he left to cause havoc in your life. Thank you, Jesus. Really appreciate that. <laughs> do you know why? Because he's using him to shape you into the person he wants you to be. You see, what do you mean? Satan comes to my family and goes, wham! Wow! Yes, he does. And God let that? Yes, he did. Why? Because he's a tool to make you into the person that he's called you to be. And if you're not living, you're going to miss that. You know what you're going to say? That woman! That's what you're going to say. That man! That kid beat him. Beat him again. That's what you're going to say. That boss of mine, that pastor, that church... So, you're saying they're innocent? No, 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 no. The enemy's involved and he's tricking and all this. And you're telling me God let that happen? Yep. Why? He wants to do something in you. And you will miss that. It's impossible for you to see it because it is a divine revelation time in your life. Where, in those kind of moments, in the tension filled moments in your home, that's why kids are given. They're not given for joy, they're not. The little balls of stress and sickness and disease and snot. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's why they're given. And they become the event by where God opens your eyes and somehow in that difficult time, He molds you. You will miss that. If you're just a strawberry shortcake good person who ties every week and just, I am not interested at all. Last thing, I had a person tell me last week, they come to me and they said, your story is my favorite in the church. I said, well, <laughs> thanks. Do I get any money for that? Or is there any kind of like residual? She said, no, no, I'm serious. She goes, you know, you're, you're coming out of your lifestyle and drugs and alcohol and all of that. That's, that's my favorite story in the church. I said, oh, that's not mine. She goes, really? I said, you know what my favorite salvation story is? it's the board member that's come to church for 25 years thinking he's a Christian and he's faithful and he mows the lawn he's never done drugs he's never smoked cigarette never got tanked and one Sunday God opens his eyes and he realizes that he's not even saved that's my favorite story and I see it more than you would you would imagine where something triggers in the life of not a bad person, but something triggers in the life of someone who's been coming to church for a long time and they say, I never got this thing and something just snaps in them and their whole life begins to revolve around Jesus Christ. And they are an absolute wrecking ball in their community and in their church and in their family and in their friendships and in their gaming and in their. Is that you? Do you salivate after him? Or are you like Sardis? I, I love, I've been coming here this over 10 years. I love you guys. You guys this is our second home. I've, there's. 50 families here. Every time we come in six days, we, we schedule breakfast, lunch, and dinner. With their, it's terrible <laughs> to get everybody in. We lo- I love you guys. I love you guys on my heart. We enjoy being here. I'm, I'm giving you my heart this morning. Are you revolving around him? When are you going to absolutely sell out? When are you going to get so just absorbed with that Jesus that you come here and listen about that everyone around you is going to say, what happened to him? That's Christian. That's not super. You don't get in without that. That that Sardis rocked my world. Because even secular historians say, in the midst of all the things that Sardis was into, the church was not. They were a beacon of light. And Jesus says, yeah, you got that reputation. But you're not enlivened by the spirit of Jesus. Jesus. Our worship team's going to come. Chad's going to yell at us here in a few minutes and preach, give us part out. And, but I, I do. Listen to me. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond. People's going to be getting up. They're going to be going in the bathroom. They're going to go get a cup of coffee. There's going to be transition. People are coming in. Kids in nursery. All of that. I mean, I'm going to help my wife get the kids in nursery, and we've got a bunch of things to do. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Don't tell me you're a Christian because you're not bad. I'm so tired of hearing. I'm not... In fact, don't come and talk to me like that. I'm going to call you on it. The days are short. The days are short. And I'm finally getting old enough where I can get aggressive with you. And if you don't call me back, it doesn't hurt my schedule. I love you too much. Are you absorbed with him? Does your revolve, life revolve around him? Can you not breathe without him? Can you not talk to your spouse without him? Do you, in fear and trembling, embrace your children, breathing his name over their brow? Do you invite him to watch every TV show with you? Are you constantly calling out, Jesus, purify my body? That's the message, man. Teen, that is the message. I love you this morning, Jesus. I'm not interested in strawberry shortcake Christianity anymore. Forgive me, i just out of step, man. I don't want to raise my son in that. I've met too many preacher's kids who go to church their whole life and never, never get it. I'm willing to trade religious proper activity for in love with Jesus with my children. I just want them to be in love with you. Like radically ridiculous, out of control love with you. I don't even care if he carries my opinions, Jesus. I'm even willing, Jesus, for him to lose my theology. I don't care. Let him become a Lutheran or a Baptist or a Catholic or whatever. I don't care. Just let him absolutely just can't breathe without your presence. We want to gather before you this morning. And Lord, I can't help but to wonder that if there are those that you're speaking to, are you dealing with this this morning? Jesus, I cannot coerce, I cannot convince, I cannot beg. I ask, would you convict, would you draw, would you move, would you pull, and would we be captured in a way that perhaps we were never captured before? I trust you, in Jesus' name, amen.